welcome back to Paris Lesbos. And if you caught our last episode, you'll be slightly familiar with this month's subject. Bookshop owner and general patron of the arts, Adrian Monier. Now, before we get to the other side of that love triangle drama, the one with Sylvia Beach and our refugee friend Gazelle, we begin in Paris, France in April 1892, along with some content warnings. Just the content warning for suicide. Be mindful, there is a suicide. Adrienne was the eldest of two daughters born to a postal clerk who worked on trains. Now, to give you an idea of the sort of family environment she had, her father was also a defender of Captain Drefuse during the Drefuse Affair. For those who don't know, it was a scandal that rocked France in 1894 up till 1906 and involved the arrest and trial of a Jewish-French military officer who was accused of espionage against France. Did he do it? No, it turns out it was a Catholic French officer who was the actual spy and who got a lighter sentence than Drefuse was originally given. Interesting. People ended up divided into two camps during this time based on whether they believed the Jewish officer was innocent or guilty. The whole event also played into anti-Semitism, as you have probably already guessed. But back to the Monier family. Adrian's mother had an open-minded interest in life, culture, and especially literature. During the week when her father was absent for work, her mother took her and her younger sister to the theater every night, starting when they were about eight years old. Adrienne saw the great plays and operas opening in the capital. She even got to see the Ballet Russe during their Parisian opening in 1909. If that rings a bell, you've probably heard our episode on Ida Rubinstein, a prominent member of that group. Now, both parents also encouraged the girls to read voraciously, which led to encountering the literary magazines circulated by prominent writers of the time, like the Mercure de France. Now, what sort of writings would these be? When you think leading writers of the time, you also think very more cutting-edge experimental stuff. Off the top of my head, I don't know what the names of the literary movements of that time would be. Shortly after Adrienne received the equivalent of a high school diploma at age 17, she went to England. She told her parents she left to learn English. In reality, she wanted to be closer to Suzanne Bonnier, a former classmate who was either already her girlfriend or would be within a few years. Man, who among us hasn't lied to our parents to hang out with a girl that we had a crush on? In this case, though, she moved abroad for nine months, during which time she worked first as a ladies' companion and then as a French teacher in a seaside resort town. After that, she returned to Paris and taught at a private school before deciding to become a literary secretary, a job that involved stenography and typing, which sounds like any other secretary job except I believe it required an above-average knowledge of current literature trends and serious, possibly philosophic discussions because Adrienne then became a secretary to the founder of the Université des Annales, who also happened to be the editor of a literary magazine. Oh, so she's moving up in the world. She stayed in that job till 1915, and it afforded her the ability to meet the editors of magazines like the Mercure de France and writers like Raquilde, a scandalous person of her own time, though I doubt our listeners have heard of her. So what about her is scandalous? Rakild is from roughly the same time period as Sarah Bernhardt, so you're thinking very 1800s stuff, like she's already 
I don't know off the top of my head how old she would be, but I don't think she lives past the 1920s. She might even die before the end of World War One. This is off the top of my head, of course. She tended to scandalize people because she would also dress as a man, cross-dressing, basically. And wrote some very scandalous novels. No. So scandalous. Now, Adrienne stayed at this job until her father suffered a train accident at work that left him disabled for life. He received compensation funds for that, and he gave them to her. Why did he give her those funds? He wanted to support her dream. And with these funds, she opened her own bookshop, La Maison des Amis de Livre, a translation roughly being the house of the friends of books. All right. Soon, she worked alongside a partner at the shop, the previously mentioned Suzanne. Though Adrienne and Suzanne worked well together, Adrienne would later say that Suzanne never returned her love in the same amount it was given. Star-crossed lovers. I don't know if that's really the definition of that. It's more just, just unrequitedness. Star-crossed lovers sound more like Natalie Barney and Renee Vivian. Yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. Adrienne would describe her as soft-spoken, bordering on subdued, always serious in an almost melancholy way that might have been called classical with the type of androgyny that symbolist would love. Why do I feel like I just described Renee Vivian? So they were together, or she was pining after Suzanne? What's the deal? They were together until 1920, when Suzanne got married and shortly thereafter died. All right, double whammy. Oof. Now, Adrienne's choice of occupation was not an unusual one given her disposition. As she later wrote, I lived with books more than people, which is to say that I can easily do without people, and that in the country of books where I dwell, the dead can count entirely as much as the living. Honestly? Same. I say this while surrounded by books on all these dead women. To each their own. I like people plenty. <laughs> the love of books would extend to her writing to famous French authors like Jules Romain, who was nominated for the Nobel Prize for Literature 16 times. Sorry, why have I never heard of this guy? <laughs> He's French. Fair enough. And I'm uncultured. How often in an American high school or college or even just at the library are you going to come across French authors, even in translation? Yeah, very seldom. I mean, that's kind of partly the premise for this podcast. Anyway, he ended up dropping by, though he initially thought she was a man, as she had concealed her first name in the letter. Women were still not always accepted into intelligentsia circles at the time of Adrienne Monnier. Honestly, this sort of stunt is probably why her bookshop became a center of French literature during the 20s and 30s, alongside Sylvia Beach's American shop across the street. Because she's willing to fudge a little bit to get people to take her seriously. Just a little lie by omission, mm -hmm. just to get you in the door. Right, and then you're like, wait a minute, she actually does have something to say. Maybe I should uh, ignore the inconvenient fact of her gender. That said, unlike Sylvia, Adrienne did focus more on books than people. You can think of these two as extrovert and introvert. Unlike Sylvia, Adrienne also wrote essays herself, and it was she who first created the lending library model in France out of her bookshop. Sylvia would use this model later for her own shop. As you may have guessed, Adrienne's essays focused on people's reading habits, and at least one of them differentiated the habits between men and women. To give an example, 
Yes, it is curious. A man, and above all, a young man, often corrects the author. He underlines. He denies. He opposes his judgment. In fact, he adds himself to it. A woman remains silent when she does not like something, and when she detests something, she cuts it out. I feel like the same can be said for comments on social media. <laughs> well, see, you say that, but like there there have definitely been, like, wasn't that, I'm forgetting what the book was, but there was this whole social media thing where it was this woman who was reading this like classic novel, and there were all of these like underlines and crossouts and, you know, saying like, wow, this is so sexist and stupid and this guy doesn't even know what he's talking about and he's being fake deep over here. And and these women, you know, the woman who annotated the book and the woman who had bought that annotated book kind of bonded over like, you know, this this shared deprecation of this male author. So like women do that too now. I don't know if that was as much the case then or if this is an exception or what, but I guess this is my social science background showing in that I want the studies. <laughs> Give me the data, Adrian. I want to see your numbers for this idea. Essentially, men scribble in the margins as if they are having an argument in person with the author, and women put their hands over paragraphs so they don't engage with words to begin with. A combative versus detached reaction, I would say. Yeah, again, like, that that might be her idea. Give me your sample sizes. <laughs> Tell me your data collection methods, Adrian. It's an interesting idea about about men and women responding to literature in these different ways. But definitely, I have had a different experience with that based on the people I knew and the choices that they made with their books, shall we say. Other quirks, as some would call them, extended to Adrian not stocking rare leather-bound editions and first editions of books. As she said, she did not want to encourage bibliophiles such as the men just described, nor did she want only economic pursuit as the focus of the shop. Instead, she wanted to cultivate an atmosphere where people browsed, sat by a pot-bellied stove, took tea, and discussed what they'd been reading recently, a practice that suited the name of the shop. I will say, as, as a person who works in a store, that is definitely a thing like today that my boss has said explicitly. She's like, we're not getting things that are like so fancy that people feel afraid to touch them. Like you want people to be able to have this like neighborhood community experience. So I love that, that we're seeing this then too. Now back to the timeline part of this podcast. Adrienne met Sylvia Beach at the end of World War I in 1917. When Sylvia walked into her shop and Adrienne rescued her hat from the wind in the street afterwards. That is so cinematic. I love it. As we saw in the last episode, the one on Sylvia, Adrienne helped her to set up her own bookshop in Paris by finding the spot and helping Sylvia to set up the structure. In Adrienne's own shop, she dealt with a host of French writers, many famous like Apollinaire, André Guide, and Paul Valéry. She also directed these friends and her other customers to Sylvia's nearby shop whenever they expressed curiosity at American literature. Her personal relationship with Sylvia would only take a turn from friendship to relationship in 1921 after Suzanne's sudden death left her single. The two bookstore owners very quickly illustrated the U-Haul trope in the apartment above Adrienne's shop. Lesbians throughout time. While Sylvia quickly became embroiled in the drama brought by James Joyce and his Ulysses, Adrienne had her own troubles with French writers as she was the administrator of a magazine called Commerce. 
there were times she would write up poems dictated to her long into the night for printing the next day, on top of long hours in the shop and sometimes helping Sylvia deal with Joyce. That sounds like a lot to deal with. Adrienne's health declined until she was forced to take a vacation. She gave up administrating the magazine after she returned, to the relief of both Sylvia and her father. The main writer on the review board was so incapable of understanding the stress he put on others that he attributed Adrienne's illness to fantastic causes. Well, you know those women put in charge of one thing and there they go. Naturally, her health improved after that, even while she did her own writing and some joint translation work with Sylvia of T.S. Eliot. Some of this writing would be published in other magazines. The 1920s then concluded with her own French publication efforts of Joyce's Ulysses. Oh, wow, I love that. So they really are like partners in everything. In the 1930s, Adrienne would only publish her own work, which usually started out as anecdotes and continued into critical analyses on a range of topics. Circus to film, literary criticism to art appreciation, and political or social concerns to attitudes towards women. This style sometimes gets her compared to Virginia Woolf. She thankfully didn't have to shoo away writers in the way Sylvia did after publishing Joyce. All the other English writers like D.H. Lawrence and Frank Harris believed that Sylvia's publication of Ulysses meant that she would also publish their erotica. As Sylvia said, they brought me their most erotic efforts. I love this so much, especially like, because now our, our understanding of Ulysses is like, oh, yeah, that that really long, difficult to get through book that no one reads because it's too complicated unless they're a lit major. And at the time, everyone's like, oh, Ulysses, erotica, of course. The Great Depression in the U.S. also affected the French economy. It turned out better for Adrienne than it did Sylvia, as Adrienne was a better businesswoman. She published a catalog for the bookshop that she'd been working on for several years. It sounds like it was a bit more than a catalog based on the time it took, but I haven't gotten a hold of a copy to confirm it. In 1934, she also tried her hand at the administration of a literary magazine again. This time went better as she remained with Miss Seuss until 1940. Maybe because it didn't have that one guy. <laughs> It frequently published French translations of the works of American and English writers like Robert Frost, W.H. Auden, and Christopher Isherwood. From this experience, Adrienne decided to create her own small literary review, the Gazette des Amis de Livre, which was financed by the sale of her French publishing rights for Joyce's Ulysses in 1937. I suspect she got more out of that than Sylvia did when Joyce asked for the English publishing rights back. Unfortunately, the Gazette was discontinued two issues before France was embroiled in World War II. The occupation of Paris put a firm end to any thought of further publication. As we stated in the last episode, Gazelfreund, a somewhat friend to them both, moved into Adrian's apartment and started a relationship with her while Sylvia was visiting relatives in the U.S. in 1937. Freund would flee France during the Nazi invasion in World War II, and Sylvia, who had moved out when she returned, would not move back in with Adrienne at that point. 
so their relationship was over, but their friendship somehow remained. So do we have any sense of Adrienne's perspective on this whole thing? Her falling in love with Gazelle or or what? Not that I found. So it remains a mystery to this day. World War II itself does not appear to have taken the same toll on Adrienne as it did on Sylvia. She never appears to have been as harassed by Nazi officers or taken to an internment camp. I suppose as a French national, she mostly just kept her head down. It's difficult times, and it's I, I want to judge her for keeping her head down, but also like the best case scenario is that she gets harassed more if she does anything. After the war, Adrienne continued to operate her bookshop until 1951, when inflammation of the joints forced her to retire at age 59. So arthritis, or...? I believe it's specifically called rheumatism, and it's, if I remember correctly, a form of arthritis, but it sounds very... Rheumatoid arthritis? (laughs) That's a rough thing to have. It really can be debilitating. Now, for her bookshop, she sold it to two partners under whom it went into slow decline and died. Right, because <laughs> she was the one with the business sense. She was the one with the vision for the type of community she wanted to create. That's really too bad. Eventually, a medical supply store took its place. At least that's doing some good. What's she up to in the meantime? Her health has continued to decline while she continued to publish in small magazines. While on vacation in September 1954, she was hit with vertigo and diagnosed with Meniere's syndrome, an affliction of the inner ear that attacks the balance and, in her case, also caused auditory hallucinations. The various medical treatments did nothing to combat hearing loud noises everywhere. That sounds awful. I know people with tinnitus, which is um, just you constantly hear like a ringing or a like whooshing sound and even just that can drive people crazy let alone you know additional noises or loud noises well everyone is always like oh she's so brave stoic so forth saying through all the medical appointments the various medical treatments did nothing to combat hearing loud noises everywhere while she did keep a journal of her illness and the various treatments one biographer directly said it is difficult to read and impossible to quote. Apparently, it's very emotionally charged if Oof. you read it. Mm-hmm. I have not seen it. I will have to take their word for it. By mid-June 1955, Adrienne became convinced that her disease was impossible to cure, and she was unwilling to live how many years as an invalid. So this is kind of with people now who have that um, right to die thing you know, where you have decided that your quality of life is not worth it. Because there's there's literally no cure. The treatments either don't work or they're horrendous, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And you, depending on what it is, the treatment can sometimes be worse than the actual disease itself. Yeah. So it's it's roughly, she's gotten to the point where it's like, I could live. But what even am I living for? Am I just existing or am I actually living? Mm -hmm. So after much thought, she took her own life after induced sleep. There was a brief coma before she died on June 19th, 1955, at age 63. Prior to her death, she had secretly arranged her private papers. On top of them, Adrienne left a note. 
I am putting an end to my days, no longer able to support the noises that have been martyrizing me for eight months without counting the fatigue and the suffering that I have endured these recent years. I am going to death without fear, knowing that I found a mother on being born here and that I shall likewise find a mother in the other life. That's beautiful, though. At least at least she has some hope. Adrienne does not appear to have been given the honors and awards that Sylvia Beach received at the end of her life. Likewise, she is not talked of as much or written of as much, probably you can see by the length of this episode, unfortunately. If many see Sylvia as a footnote to James Joyce, it appears Adrienne is more akin to a lengthy footnote to Sylvia. An odd feeling considering her achievements and contributions to French literature, so I'd hope this feeling is only induced from what is available of her in English, and that there is more talk of her in French works on the literary 1920s and 30s, and that I simply have not been able to find them. Yeah, one would hope. My goodness. I mean, we saw this in the Sylvia episode, and we're seeing it again here, that like she really contributed, Adrienne really contributed so much to Sylvia's growth and life as a bookstore owner and as a curator of literary life. And it's good that at least here we're recognizing that, but I hope that there's other people out there who see it. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to learn more about more female creatives that history left behind and some famous ones all within this milieu. We're on YouTube in addition to wherever you're listening to this podcast elsewhere. Let us know in comments if you have any other sapphics you would like us to research. We do take suggestions into consideration at times. And remember, if you read books like a woman, lesbian bookstore owners will love you.